Welcome back to another episode of Our Trumpet Life, a podcast focused on teaching, learning, and sharing all things trumpet in a positive atmosphere. I'm Ben McCarthy, one of the co-hosts of Our Trumpet Life. I'm a teacher and performer residing in Virginia, and my main focus is in classical music. My name is Derek Watson. I'm a freelancer in the Denver slash northern Colorado area. I'm mostly a lead trumpet player, but I do a lot of classical playing and uh, especially pick playing. My name is David Moore. I'm finishing my doctorate up at the University of Northern Colorado, and I'll have some exciting news for you guys soon in the next couple episodes. Uh, I'm a freelance trumpet player in the Northern Colorado and Denver scene, as well as Derek. And I consider myself more of a jazz soloist. However, I do a little bit of everything. And I'm Chris Navarrete. I'm currently finishing my doctorate over at the University of Northern Colorado and the director of bands over at the California State University of Chico. Today's topic is Inesco's Legend. It's a French piece, so you'll probably have to bear with us on a lot of these pronunciations as we go through this. But we'll get into topics such as sound, articulation, technique, definitely performance practice, and a little bit of the history as well. I hope you enjoy. Let's get to it. We have a lot of repertoire that comes out of the Paris Conservatory, and this is is one of those pieces. There were trumpet pieces written for their end of the semester, kind of what we considered juries. They had a similar thing, except it was an actual competition, and it was called the Concours. And I believe the trumpet ones went back to like, I don't know, the 1830s or so. And I'm trying to pull up this wonderful dissertation but, uh, by Gillian McKay called Trumpet and Cornet Concours, Music at the Paris Conservatory, 1835 to 1925, The Development of Styles and Roles. Yeah, it looks like there's trumpet concours pieces from 1835. So there was a lot. There's a lot of them. Those were very different from what we would consider a trumpet piece and especially very different from this piece uh, from legend and because this was the the concourse piece from 1906 and then again in 1921 yeah i actually have a little book i don't even know where i got it from but it has a little facsimile of each of the concours from 35 up to like 19 i don't know 15 or something it's pretty cool it's not the whole piece but you do see like legend is in there so you see like part of the first page of it it's pretty cool I would like to see that because I've looked for the original. I have a published copy. Well, it's very early. I think it was printed in 1908, but I don't know what the actual original looks like. I I always, when I did all this research, I was wanting to find that because I wanted to see if there's anything in that that's not in the modern edition that, you know, the typical edition we all use is probably the one from the International Music Company, I'm assuming. Green cover that's printed for C and B flat. But I, yeah, I'd be very interested in seeing that original one. So for some of our listeners, they may be confused. Often we're taught that there really isn't any literature out there for solo trumpet from the Romantic era. And it may seem to them that what we just said would contradict that. And um, 
you know, I, th I think it's important to understand that the instrument itself went through a lot of development through the Romantic era, the, the 19th century. And so, you know, it wasn't really t until the end of that century that we had a more standard, you know, instrument for composers to write for. I don't know, Derek, if you want to talk more about that. Yeah, at least in the soloistic sense that we think of it, there wasn't a ton of music pre-20th century even for the trumpet. And again, part of that is absolutely because the the horn itself was going through an impressive spectrum of development at the time. I mean, going from just getting into the valve trumpet, I think in Paris, I want to say it was like 1826 that the first valve trumpet showed up in Paris. And then going into like F trumpet and, and all these different sizes of trumpets. And it, it took a long time for just the high B flat or C trumpet to become standardized. And while we do have works for trumpet that were written prior to 1900, I'm sure people are thinking Haydn and Hummel right now. I mean, those weren't written for the trumpet that we talk about now, that we're familiar with now. And the ones that were like the Kreitzer variations or Kreutzer variations or Weber's variations, they're just not played enough for them to even be well-known, and they're just not part of the modern solo trumpet repertoire. Yeah, there was music prior to 1900. It's just not necessarily in the same vein as what we consider solo trumpet rep now. Another thing that we should get into is just discussing how the legend became standardized in our repertoire. And it was really one of the first pieces for the valve trumpet to become standardized. Yeah, and there's... a. I think there's multiple reasons, one of them, of course, being that it is it is a great piece, and that's probably the main reason, realistically. It is one of those things, likely there's some, it's the right piece at the right time, at the right place, the right players, but all that aside, it is a great piece, and one that we all still enjoy listening to now, and we enjoy playing. Now, the reasons behind that are really interesting. As we, we all can see, for those of us that own the piece, there's a dedication at the top to a guy named Marie Franquin. I hope that's pronounced correctly. And he was the trumpet professor at the time, the studio trumpet teacher for the Paris Conservatory. Now, keep in mind, he was not the cornet studio teacher, but the trumpet studio teacher. And he's the third one in the conservatory's history. Prior to him... All of the teachers wrote the concours pieces themselves. But this guy was the first one to say, I'm going to commission pieces. And before I get in trouble, there was one piece before him that was not written by the trumpet studio teacher before anyone calls me up. Anyway, the studio teacher, Marie Franken, commissioned this piece by Inesco. And it again, it came at a time when the, the horn was standardized. Although it was written for C trumpet, although it's not specified on the part. And these pieces, while not all of the pieces he commissioned became part of our solo rep, they were aimed at advancing the complexity and musicality of the contemporary solo trumpet works. And that is why there's a large bulk of Paris Conservatory works that make up modern solo trumpet rep. Everyone who's studying trumpet is going to play a lot of French Paris Conservatory music. And that's why it was really started with this guy, with Mary Franken. So prior to this, most of the pieces 
that were written for the concours were written by the trumpet teachers, you said. Yeah, all of them but one. That's phenomenal. It, and it does, I think, kind of just demonstrate how important <laughs> maybe 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 I'm overthinking this, but how important it is to have like actual composers writing music for the trumpet. Yeah, absolutely. And Inesco is a great writer, although he was 25 at the time that he wrote this. He is an incredible composer. So having someone with with those sorts of skills and applying them to the trumpet and, and you know and there's a whole lot that goes behind the composition of it that makes it obvious it was written for a certain type of trumpet that you know the standard trumpet of the time the sound of the time blah 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 that we could spend a, a, I don't know hours and hours on uh, which we won't but it really shows that you know Marie Franken was really looking ahead at trying to advance the trumpet now you know now that he had a standardized trumpet he wanted to turn it into a soloistic instrument more like a violin in that regard than what a trumpet was typically doing. Or, and, and likely also due to the popularity of the cornet, wanted to keep the trumpet in in focus. So, anyway, there's a lot more history, like we said. There's a ton more history, and if anyone is interested in it, we have a paper that you can read. It's about 15 pages all about the history, the type of trumpet that would have been used, the type of piano that would have been played with it, any of the stylistic components that are trumpet-like or not trumpet-like, that were new or old. If anyone's interested in that, send us an email at ourtrumpetlife at gmail.com. We will send that out to you. But, so as not to spend forever on that, let's dive into this piece and talk about some of the practical concerns if you're, if someone was going to perform this piece. So yeah, let's just start at the beginning and then we can all put in our individual thoughts on how we like to play this piece and then we'll also sprinkle in any of the historical stuff as we come to it. Well, I was just going to say that what's what's interesting to me is, you know, I've I've played a couple of, you know, cornet solos that were written at the turn of the century and and actually before I go any further, I should say that I I I have never worked legend up to the point to perform it. I have I have worked on it though in the past, just never just never performed it. But what's interesting to me is, you know, th- these cornet solos roughly around a similar time period. You know, when I was working on this, immediately I was comparing them to those cornet solos. And it's nothing like, like at least for me, it's nothing like those cornet solos. And so, you know, kind of going back to the history thing, that's kind of what the base is, what we think of maybe you know, the cornet was really popular in the 19th century. And, you know, we know that there were a lot of composers that were not a fan of the cornet and its development. So you would, but for me, what's, what's interesting is you would kind of think that, oh, well then these, this piece is probably just a cornet solo written for trumpet. And it's not, it reminds me more of maybe a violin solo or a concerto or something like that. But it's it's really cool. There's just I feel like there's more you can do with with the the lyrical stuff. Like there's more give and give and take. Uh, I think it's really fun. It's a great way to work on uh, developing musicality. Not that you can't play musically with those cornet solos. I mean, obviously you can do a lot with them, but uh, it, for me it just seems like a different animal. This piece is a real bear and i know it's it's only like nine minutes long i think it's six like six six and a half something like that okay because this is 
this is a real bear. This is like a taxing, draining bear. And part of it is just because how musical the beginning and end are, it it just drains you mentally and physically because you're kind of on the whole time and mixing between. You have this really, really slow intro and then this real flashy, hard-hitting middle thing of real nasty high lick in the middle some more fast flashy stuff and then an absolutely excruciatingly slow ending in a cut mute and it's hard it, it's hard now i've performed it in my undergrad and for a doctoral recital now derek did you perform this on the c trumpet i'm assuming yeah i think most people have it's interesting because this is this is one of the pieces that i played on b flat Oh, wow. Uh, and I, I can't remember how early on, I think it was my sophomore year in college. But yeah, I at the time, I hadn't I didn't even have access. Well, I had access to a C trumpet. I didn't have a C trumpet. And so I remember for the recital, or I guess this was either probably a jury piece, I was trying to find B-flat pieces. And this is one that we went back and forth on. And we finally decided that, yeah, we'll just learn this one on B-flat. Now, it sits differently, obviously. It, it feels... Uh, a lot of these runs are actually more difficult on the B-flat side than it is on the C side. But my experience playing this piece is exactly what you were saying, Derek. I, I felt like the, just the long, drawn-out opening and closing in this piece, is it really is taxing. And it is emotionally taxing as well, physically, emotionally. The whole piece is just so expressive. And, I mean, there's so many markings in this piece. That was one of the things that... Actually, Derek, you mentioned in your paper was you talking about how how much expression was written into this piece, and that wasn't typically seen in a lot of the trumpet music during the the Romantic period. As far as the challenge that it is, is not a piece I would recommend for someone who's getting into the repertoire. I feel like this is something that you would want. It's not that it's technically too hard or range is too high or it's not like it pushes the the boundaries of in any one particular fundamental but i feel like the challenge as a whole that it's really something i you know sophomore year i think is a good time sophomore year and beyond is a good time to get into this piece and that's not to put like limitations on anyone that wants to get to it before that i i'm not adverse to young students learning this piece. It's just that it is a big project to, uh, to undertake. Yeah. There's just a, there's a few things I think for a younger player, the maybe the biggest hurdle is for anyone following along at home. I, I believe this is measure 35, 35 through 38 that goes up to a high C and it's a, it's a majestic high C. I mean, on C trumpet, it's a, a very, big moment i don't know the legend as a form of music as an actual form i don't know if this was like a really widely cultivated form but if we i like to think of because just with the title legend i tend to think of this heroic battle like this legendary tale and this section at 35 is like this big the big triumphant moment and it's it doesn't seem that long because i say three measures but it's it's a slow three measures. It's avalante. I don't know if that's pronounced correct, but at, at performer's will, it's slow, drawn out, 
and you have to sit there on a high C, high B, high A. It's almost all above the staff. It's all above C in the staff. And it's that that is hard. Like you have to have a comfortable high seat to do this. It's also at Fortissimus and you're, again, it's a big triumphant thing. You're playing almost as loud as you can. That's going to be the biggest struggle for a younger player is having the face to get through that. And again, it's in the middle. So you have to get through a lot to get there and you have to go through a lot to get to the end of the piece. So again, you have to be very comfortable up there to get through and, you know, you're ending at Pianissimo low C in a cut mute pianissimo yeah pianissimo and it's just it's brutal so I think that's the that's the only struggle that a, a, a really young player I think is going to have because all the technical stuff is well within the bounds of a lot of young players high school players but that's going to be the I think the biggest challenge for the young players yeah I agree I if I were to add something else I would add just coordinating with your accompanist is being one of the the biggest challenges that a performer is going to face with this. There, There's just so many, especially towards the end, there's so many uncomfortable entrances for trumpet because the piano part seems a little more loose. It's really one of those pieces that you have to know each part, the trumpet part and the piano part. And I recommend that for all trumpet literature and for like whenever you're preparing to perform, because that's really how you're going to be able to open up and communicate between and, you know, communicate, collaborate with your accompanist. That's, that's actually making music together. But this piece seems to be even more important for that because of how really how easily you can get lost in your own part and, and not really understand what the piano is doing towards the end yeah for sure and there's you know i can we can give some specific areas where it's absolutely crucial and maybe we'll get to that if we get when we get a little more specific but i absolutely agree this is and again this is one of those pieces this is not just a hey it's the end of uh it's the end of the year competition time at the parish conservatory like we're just going to show off the soloist this is a real piece of music that was intended to be a, a real collaboration between the two instruments and you are going to have to make music together. And so you have to know the, the piano part. And there's a, quite a few transition spots where you just, you really have to know them where you're just not going to come in correctly because again, the piano player should be also playing musically here. And there's a lot of push and pull that can happen. There's just a lot of musicality involved even in the piano part, it's not just an accompaniment part. Uh, it doesn't say legend for trumpet and piano accompaniment, actually, in the title. It specifically says for trumpet and piano. So it's like, really, it's a duo piece. Yeah, I think that's a good mindset, really, to approach most music as well. I Actually, I did have a question, and this is kind of in general, so anyone feel free to chime in. But can you guys remember the first time that you performed a piece that included fast runs. Yeah. A couple of pieces come to mind. Probably the first one would be the Artunian. <laughs> you know, uh, I'm thinking that too for me. Yeah. That would be the first one that comes to mind. So I have a follow-up question then. Do you remember how you approached learning, especially when they're tricky runs? Do you remember how you approached learning them? 
Yeah, a couple different ways. You know, the first instinct that I had when I first learned it, because I was young when I first learned Dartunian, was just rip it and quit it. Just go full barrel and just aim for the high notes. And because, you know, high notes were where you want to land and make that thing sound real strong. But as I got older, I became more wise. And <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, I practice in chunks. So a nice way I like doing it, and this builds strength and consistency. The secret to learning anything well, in my opinion, and this goes how I'd practice this piece too, is slow, consistent, 80% accurate, 80% accuracy or higher. And so if I were to do this, uh, looking at the whatever run, you can take whatever run you want in this. I was even looking at the last part of that chromatic that part right there i would take the last phrase and i would do a backwards design so i'd start at the end of the phrase so where i'm going and then i'd work backwards and i'd put the met on at a half tempo focusing on fundamentals so making sure i have good tone i'm slotting the pitches i'm playing with good connection and motion and i have good posture and good breath and then basically I would do one beat. I would put one beat or a half beat. And then I would go one, two, da -da 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 -da, or one, two, if that's like the eighth note or whatever. And then da -da 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 -da, da -da 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 -da, or da -da 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 -da, whatever the rhythm is. And just get it to where it's good when you get it accurate at that slow half tempo. Then my rule is doing it 10 times in a row perfectly before I move it back a little bit, back an eighth note, back a quarter note, and then I build off of that, and then I do it again 10 times in a row. And then when I get the whole line at that tempo, then the next day I click it up one tempo, one click, and then I do it again. That That's such a good approach, and I think one that isn't often taken, especially for younger students, and I know that I've, I'm guilty of that as well often. But I, I asked this question specifically because in this piece, there are many runs. There's, there are many runs that are both technically challenging and very quick, and then also changing in duration of time. So about halfway through the VF section, there's there's a septuplet run. There's also a quintuplet run. So the, the duration of these of these runs can be either faster or slower. And so I remember when I first started working on this, I all, I had that same mentality, Chris, where as long as I got the first note and the last note, that's all that mattered, right? And if I, if I land in time, that's the important part. And that messed me up for the longest time because that's not how you need to learn these runs or, or even music in general. You have to subdivide. And I remember when I first learned this technique in my lesson, it was with Dr. Adler. And he was breaking it down for me into you know, increasingly faster subdivisions. So in that one septuplet run, it's preceded by two sixteenth notes. Well, actually, sorry, it's a it's a it's actually a subdivision of a triplet. And so what 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 I did was you play duple, triple, and then quadruple. So you're you're actually getting faster in the subdivisions as the run continues and that allows you to put it metrically in time but also have the illusion of 
this fast moving increasingly faster as it gets towards the top and landing right on the downbeat perfectly in time. It was the first time I had ever practiced subdivisions on a run like that, especially when it is like a septuplet. It is trickier than just doing like a sextuplet where it's just, you know, two da 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 you know, versus versus doing in this case it would be da 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 da. Yeah, that's an that's a nice musical gesture too. That just sounds really cool. Yeah, and once you're able to play the gesture perfectly in time, then you're able to have a little wiggle room with expression. But unless you unless you know where ex- exactly where to put it, then you you really don't have that freedom. And then you're going to really have a lot of problems is with your own time in general. So this piece to me, because there's so much of that in this piece, was a was a huge learning experience for me, specifically with subdivision and playing in time. And it to me, it's just so necessary to learn this piece as well. Could you can you elaborate a little bit more? Because that is such a I've never heard of that one before of breaking it down into those subdivisions. I mean, let's take like another run in here and maybe like towards. So the quintuplet, it's two measures after the septuplet. So this for those who are following, actually, I don't have a measure number, but it is about it's halfway through 53, 53. Thanks, Derek. So it's the second beat of measure 53. This the the quintuplet would be you're breaking it down into a duple and a triple. So it'd be da 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 Oh, I see. Right. So once you have that, yeah, exactly. One, two, one, two, three, one. And as soon as you have that in your mind, you can play it strictly in time that you can have a little more leeway with expression, but you first have to be able to have that metrically in time. And before that, you know, you, there's all these tricks that people will teach. Opportunity one. There's one that I've learned early on. And those are good, but really it's the principle behind that, the subdivisions that you really need to be comfortable with because there's always going to be deviations with the words that you put to things. So that's just another example. There's plenty of them in here. But as far as the, the principle being just strictly being uh keeping yourself true to the subdivisions and breaking things down in a way that puts things exactly in time and then from there working on the expression you know not to not to mention kind of going back to what you just said the the whole all the little tools people have for learning certain groupings like the opportunity one whatever the words are those are supposed to be tools to help get you comfortable with the groupings and with subdivisions, they're not supposed to be tools that you use to always perform and play these subdivisions and groupings. Because when you're doing that, you don't want to be playing this piece and going, ba, 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 opportunity, ma. Like, now you're not thinking about the music anymore. Right. And and it's that's one, it's not certainly not fair to this piece. And it's not fair to any of the pieces, but especially one this good. Because it, it pulls you out of whatever the thing, whatever... It, image or whatever thing you're trying to express now you all you're thinking is okay i'm making music i'm making music opportunity like you know it just it takes everything out and i like what you said about getting very you need to be comfortable with that so that you can then make music with it um and that reminded me of something bill fun always tells me which is you have to give every note its time 
And in a piece like this, where there are a lot of different groupings, like seven, six, five, three, four, all these weird, all, not all those are weird, but there's a lot of, a lot of different groupings. And there's a lot of, a lot of times that's very fast. They happen at different tempos throughout the piece. If you don't give a note its time, it's likely going to mess you up. Like, it's likely going to cause you to flub something, to frack something, to uh, lose focus, to, uh, you know, any uh, sort of mistake. And if you don't, if you don't spend the time to get comfortable with these things on a piece like this, on an extremely expressive piece like this, then it's just going to lead to, one, you not being able to express what you want to express, if you're going to express anything at all. But it will also likely cause you to make more mistakes than you would if you just became comfortable with it. Well said. And I think that that's, it's just such an important principle for, for, to, to teach your students. And for our listeners here today, just like understanding that, yeah, we have all these tools that we approach learning music with, but ultimately it's music, you know, we're making music, we need to be expressive. And so give each note its time but know where the time is first yeah. you don't want to guess <laughs> and then and then give each note its time man this is such a good piece and you know as we're talking about it it's bringing back memories of performing it and obvious past mistakes as well performing it <laughs> what's your guys's favorite section of this and don't say the whole piece i want to know is there a specific phrase or bar that you just absolutely love. I love measures 73 through 75. Now that's the very end. So it's the all but the last measure essentially. And because I think I tend to think of this as this big heroic journey thing. And, you know, I don't have, like, I do not have a clear picture. I, if someone wanted to know what is the story I'm portraying, there isn't, there isn't a clear story. It's, I understand, I can feel the moments that are happening in here being emblematic of a heroic journey. I, I don't have any specifics. And so it's hard for me to also th to figure out exactly what it is I feel at the end of this. Whether it's just the release of going on this on this journey where there's a lot of conflict and tension and then this is being somewhat uh, as a resolution or this is, you know, some sort of maybe the hero doesn't make it and this is like the, these are the last thoughts as he's dying and just the idea of like a life well lived or pushing through conflict and uh, blah, 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 things were worth it, blah, blah, blah. I don't know exactly. But there's something of all of those things that I just described in those three measures that I really like. And it's excruciatingly slow. Just as a reference, when I figured out the tempo I like for this piece, and I wrote it at the top, it's quarter note equals somewhere between 42 and 45. It is slow. And at the end, you're in a cut mute. And a very buried cut mute. I believe I at one performance I was using a Dennis Wick cut mute filled with a bag and pushed all the way in like it's tight and it's a it's a dark sound but it's a little bright it's a little thin 
Like there's almost some struggle in it, but the music has a little bit of resolution, but there's still some struggle in the sound. So yeah, it's hard. I wish I could give a clear picture of what's happening there at the end or what I'm feeling at the end. I think you you do bring up a good point there though. And it is feeling like you have to feel something. And honestly, I don't know how you could not feel something with how well this piece is written because I remember my first time listening to it and just being like, wow, those like the final notes of this piece are one of those. It's like one of those moments where you, you finish listening to it and then you sit in silence for a little bit and just kind of like, you know, let it linger in your mind. At least that's how it felt to me. And so then trying to perform it. Yeah, you have to encapsulate that in your performance somehow. And really the best way to do that is to get in, get into a mood, get into, you know, whatever it is. You you can make up your own story. You can make up your own mood or feeling that you want to attribute to the different sections, but relive something. Yeah, you really have to in my opinion <laughs> in, in order to really give this piece I I would like to say it's, you know, to respect the piece, respect the composer, but really to to perform it in a way that has that feeling for other people when they listen. I really like the opening. I get like the same image in my head that I get when I listen to the prelude to Parsifal. And I just like picture every time I listen to either of these, just the intro, I imagine this knight in... Uh, shining plate armor standing on like a plateau looking over a forest and it's really misty very gray day and that's 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 always like the image that pops in my head for both of those um yeah i yeah i think the intro is amazing i agree and it does like you said david it does resemble the the last section in the first section are very similar uh, the, i feel like the the mood is different but it's similar in composition so where do we go from here okay well i have a question for you guys because there's a lot of tricky spots in here and everyone's gonna have trouble with different things what are some tricks tips spots of concern that you guys have when looking through this uh and any ways to solve those things that you would have for someone that's going to perform this so tips and tricks for spots for people who are going to have to play this yeah, I'll start. I'll just start right at the top. One that's maybe people overlook sometimes, and I do this often, <laughs> unless I'm keeping myself accountable, is on slow sections. And you should do this all the time, by the way. But especially on slow sections, we get lazy and we forget to subdivide the time. And this piece has a lot of slow sections on it. And there is, someone can make the, the, the claim of using rubato as a way to shape the time a little bit, but you're playing with another person. And on top of that, there still needs to be some sense of time. So my tip would be when you're playing this piece, especially on those long held out notes, yeah, quarter note subdivision is good. Maybe even go to an eighth note subdivision. Maybe go into the subdivision that you're about to play in the next bar when you're playing that long note. That's would keep you on track and give it some energy into the note. Uh, so you're starting on a long note and then you're thinking subdivision and it has this motion forward 
that would be my biggest, you know, quick little tip that you can easily practice this with any piece that you do, but especially with these piece with all the slow sections. For me, in sections, for instance, when you have this descending and uh, ascending chromatic line, I, I don't have I don't have measure numbers on my piece or my copy. For me, it's fourth line from the end. When you when you measure sixty, yeah, okay, measure sixty. A way to practice stuff like that, and something I've done. It's actually something I do when I'm working on my jazz stuff. But um, I'll take a chromatic scale or a scale, whatever. And I'll play it in different groupings, or I'll set the metronome on to the smallest subdivision, and then I'll start to take take the clicks away. So by the end of it, I'm getting a downbeat every two measures, and I have to feel comfortable with my own my own time, my own the, the way I feel the the beats going by. I have to be very confident with my own um, with my own time. And I think that's just a great way to do it. Also, if you're really feeling the big beats, it helps you relax a little bit. I think a lot of us, when we when we're really focusing on the subdivision, you know, it's like it's like we're playing a machine gun. It's like you know, and it just it has it just feels and sounds tense. And if you back off and you feel the big beats, typically you'll give those notes their full note value, and you can be more relaxed and you can do more musical gestures with them. Excellent. So for me, man, there's so many things I'd I'd love to say, but I'll try to try to make it quick. I think the first thing that jumps out to me, and it was really again one of these first experiences that I had, where I started like my my teacher again. This was John Adler at the time taught me to start marking where I breathe. I had never done that before, and maybe that's something that people do more commonly, but I hadn't, and it made the biggest difference, not just for phrasing, but for being able to get through the longer phrases without either stacking your air or running out of air too soon. It's, it's huge marking your breaths. And that's something that I encourage everyone to do for every piece they play. If they don't have already like naturally breathing, like places to breathe and, and whatever solo that they're playing. So that'd be my first thing. Second thing is just a couple of really specific spots in this that helped make really just learning it easier. And maybe it's different on C trumpet. So for those learning on B flat, maybe this is more specific to that. So in measure 22, at the end of measure 22, there's the sextuplet run. And because it has, I obviously at this point we're triple tonguing, it has that leap. It's a fourth leap at the very end and it puts the K tongue on a, on an upper note. And it's a little difficult to make that really speak sometimes. So what I did, and again, this was through my teacher's recommendation was I changed the way I articulated that from instead of going tataka, tataka, I did tataka, takata. So tataka, takata, ta. And that made all the difference in being able to get all those notes to cleanly speak and land on the downbeat. So that's my first quick tip. Uh, I think it would apply to C trumpet as well, but it's just something to to mess around with if you're struggling with that section. Uh, and then the second big thing, and again, this is specifically for those playing it on B flat. All right, so in measure 35, you have that figure that goes up to the high C, and it's slow, 
And it is so easy to play that out of tune <laughs> on the B flat specifically. Those high D's on the B flat are really, really out of tune if you finger them with first valve. So try playing them open again, specifically for B flat trumpet, but that helped tremendously uh, for intonation. And really that whole section is, can be an intonation nightmare for B flat trumpet. And it's, I imagine some of that would apply to C as well. So experiment with alternate fingerings. If that applies, it is slow, so you're able to get away with using awkward fingerings that you might not be able to get get away with on a faster section. Great. So I have a lot. I have, well, we could all go measure by measure here, but if I were to pick some of the more important ones to get out quick, the first one would be know the tempo that you want to play this. Again, I said mine is quarter note somewhere between 42 and 45 know the range you want to play this in and really find out for yourself because it is such a personal it's such an expressive piece i think the best way to do that is to find some way in which it connects with you that being said you should play a tempo that connects with you and it can be faster than 42 to 45 it could be slower if it's slower, I'm sorry, because that's, that's hard. 42 to 45 is already hard. All right, the next one is there's a few transition spots in here that you need to communicate with your accompanist how you want to make those transitions. The first one is measure 20. You really want to know what does the piano have, the beat before measure 20. And how are you starting measure 20? Because you have a 16th note. Granted, it's a slow 16th note, but you have a 16th note and then you're coming in hot on a chromatic run. So know what you want to do and how you're getting into that transition. It's it's something worth practicing. And that goes for everyone at any level. If you're coming in to do a job audition, you're going to play Legend with a new accompanist. That will be one of the first things you'll want to hit is let's hit the transitions, know how we're getting in and out of these things. Um, another spot, another transition is 44. Uh, and another one, measure 69. Anyway, there's a, there's a couple of them. There's a, there's a few of them. So know exactly how you want to do that. And then another one, and this is just an overall tip it's not necessarily related to trumpet. It's more of a musical thing. And even beyond that, it's more of a performance thing. In measure 63, you have rests for a while. You have about five measures of rests before you come into the very end with your pianissimo section of whatever you want to picture in your head. I'm picturing a dying hero at the end of his life. And you're in a mute. It's quiet. And it's low. But at, at 63, don't just put your mute in. Wait. Let the music get there. Okay, you got three measures before. There's a fermata. And then the piano comes in at 6-4 in measure 67. And you've got time. Remember, it's slow. So don't just don't rush to put in your mute. Sit there and listen to the music. Let it get to the fermata. Let the piano player move on into the slow section where you're now dying in my head we're dying 
then put the mute in and get ready. So just stay relaxed. Remember, it's just one of those things to help you be present uh, and, and make that transition into this new image that's going to come floating. At least that's a spot where the new image starts to float in. So that's what I would say. And there's countless others. And I think we've kind of touched on a lot of this. Know the piano part. If you play this in a rehearsal, you'll know. <laughs> you'll find out very quickly what spots you need to know the piano part. So just pay attention to that. Yeah, and just to add quickly onto that, you can you can write piano cues into your part. And I think that's it can be very helpful. That's not to say to, you know, take your mind out of the piano part while you're like playing and performing. You still want to be listening. But the piano cues can be very helpful for knowing when it is exactly that you're coming back in. Yeah, I agree. No point in chancing it. It's like if you say I'm going to perform it memorized and you've one, you've never done that. And two, you maybe haven't put, spent enough time on the piece and then you go and realize, Oh, now I'm nervous and I forgot the whole piece. You don't want to do that. So yeah, just write the cues in and the more you play it, the more familiar you'll get with it. And then you might not ever look at them, but if you ever need them, they're there. For this piece, I just think that it's so important to plan many rehearsals. And it goes to all the points that we've talked about so far, but especially with the pianist, just plan many rehearsals and be prepared. Like, obviously, be prepared, but give yourself the time that if you need to add another rehearsal, that you have the time to add another rehearsal, because this is just one of those pieces that you might and probably will need to add another rehearsal. Great. Well, uh, do you guys have anything else to add? I think it would be helpful if we go around and just give a suggestion for someone to listen to that has performed this piece. So the one I suggest would be the Eric Abbe recording. Uh, the name of the album is French Music for Trumpet and Orchestra. Great. I also love that recording. I really love that recording. Um, I also like Hokan's recording and David Dash has a, a great recording. There's a, a YouTube video from a live recital. I think it's very great. Yeah, I actually was also going to suggest a YouTube video. Uh, this one's by Allison Balsam. Beautiful sound, and it's just, uh, the, the feeling in the piece is great. Yeah, Allison Balsam, that's what I was thinking about, too. Uh, that's a fantastic one. And Phil Smith does one, too. Yeah, I know he has, he has a record out on that one, so uh, it's worth checking out. Great. Well, if anyone wants to hear any more information about this actually not even here if anyone wants to read more information about this piece we have a paper that's out so if anyone wants that send us an email uh, our trumpet life at gmail.com and i'll happily send that to you in pdf form it goes over a lot more of the history again what the type of trumpet that would have been played how that differs from the one that we would play it on now the type of piano that would have been used yeah, it gets into performance practice, which is such a good topic for this piece. Yeah, performance practice and yeah, and, and in general, just more information on the Paris Conservatory Trumpet Studio. Oh, and there's some cool stuff about the difference between trumpet repertoire at the time and cornet repertoire at the time that had some interesting stuff that I had not known or even thought of as being a thing prior to learning about that. So if anyone's interested in that, send us an email and we'll send you a copy. Well, that's going to wrap it up for us today. Thanks again so much for listening. 
If you'd like to reach out to us with any questions or comments, you can contact us at our email, ourtrumpetlife at gmail.com. And you can always check out all of our social media platforms and our website at ourtrumpetlife.com. Thanks again, and until next time.